0: the presence of God has met with us today. We're glad to have that confidence, so we don't have to come wondering if He'll meet with us. We know that He will, uh, because He promises: when two or three are gathered in My name, uh, I will be there with you. Uh, thank you all for gathering with me today and with each other, uh, that we might uh, would hear from the Lord and be able to experience His presence in a way that cannot be experienced outside of the church we're grateful for this unique opportunity if you got a bible i would love for you to open up with me to first john chapter 4 um, that's just at the end of your bible so if you want to go to the back and we'll go that way uh, through revelation uh, and uh, you will turn a few pages and you'll find first john um, we are going to be turning to luke 15 at the end of our hour so if you want to find that and put a marker there if not I think that'll be pretty easy to find here in a little while. Um, but First John 4, I want to read a couple verses to get us started today. Um, the theme will be pretty obvious um, as we begin to read this text, um, but one that uh, I believe uh, will speak to our hearts today. Um, not just because of what day it is, but because of the promise that God gives to us every single day. Uh, the good news um, that we celebrate um, as his people. Uh, 1 John chapter 4, I want to read verse 7 through 10 and this is what the word of the lord tells us beloved let us love one another for love is of god and everyone who loves is born of god and knows god so i want you to hear something in this text john is anchoring knowledge of god service to god following god around this one thing around this reality of love this 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 reception of love that we find in god and that we should share with each other in and, and verse 80 makes this monumental statement he who does not love does not know god now we may would say well there's a lot of signs of knowing god knowledge you know what you've done for him where you've been for him the things you know the accomplishments that a lot of people would say i know god here's how you can you know here's how i can prove it But John says there's only one way that I will take anybody's word uh, that they know God. The only thing that I'll uh, trust is if they have love in and through them that I've seen with my own eyes and felt with my own heart that I've seen in God and that can only be found in God. And here's why John is so confident to make this kind of statement. For God is love. Love. There's a lot of attributes of God, a lot of things that you might say God has this or God shows this or God gives this. But this is the only thing where we see God defined. God is love. And that's why John is so willing to put his neck on the line around this one thing. He goes forward. He says, in this the love of God was manifested, revealed toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him say, well, I've heard that verse before. John says, yeah, I wrote that, and I'm saying it again. This is how we know love, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might have life, eternal, everlasting, true life. And this is love, or this is the definition, and this is how you can tell what love really is, the highest standard of love. And this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be loved. The propitiation, easy for me to say, the atonement, the provision for forgiveness, the atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So again, John is anchoring his entire theology around this reality, around this phrase, God so loved us. That, to John, is where it all that is where the conversation starts and ends. Maybe different than you're used to hearing, but it should be what, we're, uh, what we always hear. But, but I, I think this can be said. I think this is true. Sometimes hearing something the same way over and over again might have a numbing effect on us. You've heard things, not just biblical things or Christian things, but you've heard things over and over and over again, and you kind of get tired of hearing them, or you hear them so much, you kind they lose their meaning, they lose their impact, they lose their, you know, their awe and their, their impact on you, their effect on you, they lose the ability to get your attention. Sometimes the truth behind the statement becomes meaningless because we've kind of just heard it the same way over and over again. Sometimes when the truth is said in a different way, it may hit different. It may register with a different impact, and I don't mean just to say something different for the sake of saying it differently, but I mean framing it in a fresh way that also happens to be a true and even clearer portrayal of the truth. Now, that may seem to be what was going on in the song that we just sang, uh, which is all about a familiar topic, God's love, but it presented and it celebrated in a way that we don't often talk about God's love. Just to remind you of the words that we say a few minutes ago, rushing in to meet me here, your love is fierce. That's not a way we usually describe God's love, is it? I mean, knocking a wall down is the analogy there. That God's love is fierce, ferocious, furious. We don't usually put those words with God's love, do we? Tearing through the atmosphere is in whatever is in the way. Whatever separation there may be, there is a determination behind God. Now, of course, that's just a song, but that song is rooted in scriptural truths that we don't talk about a lot. Perhaps that's a new way to frame or to pick God's love than you're used to, maybe the lyrics get your attention when we sing that song. They always get mine. When I I first heard that song a few years ago, I'll be honest, those words didn't come off my lips naturally, uh, as some others do, uh, because that was just a a different way of of, of presenting God's love. Uh, Oddly enough, though, I think most of us would be completely comfortable separating those two realities and feeling normal about them pertaining to God. As in most of us would nod our heads at an exposition about God being fierce. That if we just said God is fierce, we would be fine with that. We would agree with that. We would say, yes, I I would agree that God is holy. God is ferocious. He is almighty. He is glorious. He is infinitely brighter than the brightest light we'll ever see. He is absolutely, incredibly more remarkable and perfect than anything you'll ever encounter. I think most of us would nod our heads to that. Yes, God is fierce. He is bigger. He is better. He is brighter than any other object we'll ever see in the universe. This universe and all of its contents from the planets to atoms, products of a mere week of God's eye. We would agree God is fierce. Hebrews 12 puts it this way in in, in a way that makes you kind of sit up a little straighter, I think. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I mean, you know, we, we've heard that before, and, and, and maybe that makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe it, it makes you, you know, want to raise your fist and say, hey, Amen. I don't know where you're at with that, but we believe that is true. You know, when preached the right way and all the things in the right perspective, this can be humbling. It compels us to fall on our faces in awe and adoration. It should. Our God is a consuming fire. history is filled with reasons for which we should have been consumed by his ferocious and fierce and holy nature. You don't have to look on the news uh, very very much or very long to find reasons why the consuming fire of God should have left nothing in his path. We We have a few things in our own private secretive past that maybe would qualify as those in history. Humanity has done a lot of things that would deserve the consuming fire of God. Yet, yet, here's what I think is just really remarkable and why I think this actually brings us back to where we began our conversation. Because this is true. God is holy. God is ferocious. He is almighty. He is glorious. Nobody deserves to stand in his presence. No one should ever get within a million light years of God. But I want to kind of bring us back to the whole point today. We sit here today not consumed, but chosen, right? We sit here today not consumed by this fierce and ferocious fire. Not that he isn't. We sit here today, and maybe you don't know this. I hope you know this, but I hope if this is news to you. This is a great way to hear it. You don't sit here consumed, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You are chosen. To, more specifically, we are not here today consumed or about to be consumed by our sin. You are here today called a son and daughter of God. Amen. So yes, our God is a consuming, ferocious, furious, fierce, holy fire but you sit in his presence today chosen and called the reason for that is because yes while god is all those things they don't describe his wrath or his anger towards us they describe his love for us you hear that they describe that we don't have to separate the fierce and ferocious and almighty and glorious and infinitely bright side of God and the love side of God. For that reason, the reason because we've separated those things, we've weakened and watered down and diluted what it means to be loved by God. And that's why we have not been changed by God. Because we don't truly know what it means to be loved by an almighty Glorious God, loved in a fierce and furious and awesome way. The Bible says, yes, God is a consuming fire, but the Bible says here in 1 John, God is love. That's why John is so confident to anchor his entire Christian theology and ideas around this truth. God is love. Therefore, you should love and you must love. And if you don't love, you don't know God because the God I Yes, he's bright, but before all that and above all that and bigger than all that, he's love. Find another verse where God is defined as something and we'll talk, but you won't find anything that contradicts. First John 4:8. How then does the Bible describe or define God's love? There we see it in verse 9: that God's love is revealed, that's a manifest is a big word, for revealed or defined toward us. In that God sent His Son to the world that we might live through Him. That we were on the brink of being consumed. Yes, that we were all in our sin, were worthy of being judged, worthy of death, and caught in death in our sin. Destined for death. Yet what did God do for us? He sent His Son to save us. More importantly, He sent His Son to die for us. That's what verse 10 says. That Jesus is our atonement. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is the lamb that died for us. The threat has been taken away. The threat of death. The threat of sin. The threat of the enemy. Jesus removed that and replaced that with the love of God. Again, love has been so diluted. It's been taken down, reduced down. When we hear about God's love, we think about it in this flimsy and passive and impersonal way. I mean, listen again how John describes God's love. How can you not describe that as fierce and thunderous? I mean, the kind that would chase us down, the kind that would tear through the atmosphere, rush to meet us wherever we are, however we may be found. God has come to us with his gospel, finding us in our sin, redefining us in his love. Religion, And and here, you know, I know I talk about this a lot, but I want to make sure that we never become religious, okay? Because this is our drift and our tendency. Religion has done so much damage to God's true character. Religion has dampened God's passion. Religion loves to present God as this temperamental, moody, angry, impersonal God. But the Bible tells us of a God who so loved the world that he did something for the world. A world that did not love him. A world that does not show love for him by nature. There are many different pictures that you can lift from the scriptures to try to understand God. For this reason, some have a hard time getting a clear picture of God. But if you take the story as a whole, if you hear the story in its completion, you find a story of a God who fiercely loved a creation and creatures that did not love him back. And he went to extreme and endless measures to win us back. God has loved us in an elaborate and excessive way to the point that people would say, you've done enough, God. No, I'm not. Because when you are the very embodiment of love, you do not know an end. You do not know enough. God has loved us in an elaborate and excessive way so that, and he has a goal in all this, to wake up our souls true longing for him buried by sin buried by shame by guilt there is a connection to god you may not realize it that a relationship is what your soul wants the most but god is determined to wake up our souls not just because god is committed to us or it feels like he's obligated to to, to take care of us No, he loves us he loves you in a way that we can't even comprehend There's a verse that the Hebrew writer pulls from, a verse that might make us a little uncomfortable, might make us a little bit, I don't really know how to feel about that. But in the Hebrews, in Hebrews, the writer is quoting this verse from Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now maybe that's not a side of God you think about. Maybe it should be. Maybe religion has walked God back from this place he proudly identifies and advocates for in the scripture. Religion, religion loves to push its glasses up on this and says, well, I don't know about that. That's why religion is dead. Religion has walked God back. Maybe today of all days is the perfect day that we can kill back this reality and turn up this volume on what is true about God. Today, being Father's Day, we're used to the obvious parallels, the easy parallels that God is our Heavenly Father. But I feel like that we don't take that to its fullest extent. And to truly discover and know the God who loves us fiercely, some of you, some of you may have or have had an awesome relationship with your earthly dads. And I hope you did. I hope you do. If you're mourning the loss of a dad today, if you're, if, you, if you're mourning because of those good memories that you wish you could continue to make, my prayers are with you. If they're not with you anymore, if you missed them tremendously, at least you have that memory of, 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 a, of an awesome father that you knew and, and continue to, to think about. Now some of you, you may describe your relationship with your dad as rocky at best. Maybe it's non-existent. Maybe he was absentee or, or maybe something worse. If I may lean into that sensitivity, though, just a little bit, is it wrong to suggest that there may be some resentment there in your life? That maybe there's a father wound in your life because you feel at your soul that you needed something that your dad wasn't for you? You know, I think... One of the biggest crises in our country today is that there are so many father wounds, emotionally and mentally, and in some ways worse than that. Father wounds are so prevalent and pressing, they're so difficult to deal with because every one of us longs for a connection with our father, don't we? We long for a relationship with both of our parents. It's excruciating when someone or something takes that from us or robs us of that. Maybe you didn't or you don't have a good relationship with your dad, but that very longing tells us how much we wish we could, doesn't it? That bitterness, that resentment, that pain that makes you realize that that's how much you want it. Maybe you had or you have the greatest relationship with your dad, that feeling that he gives you the strength, the courage, the warmth. That just confirms how important a father's love is, doesn't it? So so I guess... I guess you could say that our Father's presence in our lives make an incredible difference from the condition of our minds, the well-being of our minds, to the sense of direction we do or don't have. Now let me ask you this. Do you suppose that the Bible describes God as our Father as a mere reflection of our earthly realities? Or do you suppose that our earthly reality is but a reflection of a heaven? What do you think? Could it be? Could it be that the desire for a relationship with our Father and the wound that persists without one speak of a greater desire? And warn of a greater potential wound if we don't find that relationship? See, we all know too well the frustration and pain that can come from earthly father wounds, whether we bear them ourselves or whether we see them in others and use them as reasons to explain the setbacks that are so prevalent and so present. Hopefully, we all know the joy that comes from our earthly dads, having them love us and lead us and protect us. Your soul longs for this, but it also longs for something more than that. That what we get to enjoy in brief pockets on earth is but a preview and a cry for something greater, something more that you want with your heavenly Father. You know, I think maybe what we cherish about our dads the most and what we really want the most from our dads is the sense of belonging they give us, that sense of approval they give us. You want your dad to be proud of you. You want there to be that automatic pleasure that automatic you know pleasing him you don't want that to be in question do you maybe you grew up in a home where you had to earn it i hope not but maybe you you grew up in that home and maybe for that reason that explains the insecurities that you have that explains why you have some trust issues because you did not have the approval of the one that most that you most needed it from Those with father wounds are usually wondering if they're good enough, wondering or second-guessing themselves always. But those with dads that love them the right and only way found something better than an opportunity to earn approval. That what our dads are supposed to give us and what we want from them the most is unconditional acceptance. Now even the best of dads struggle to always show this. But this is what we long for. Having this can change everything about our lives. Not having this can explain their, the deficiencies in our lives. You know, a father's acceptance, the approval from your dad. You know why that your heart wants that the most? I, I think you could say that a father's acceptance feels like the safest place we could ever land. That knowing that you can fall into the acceptance of your father, that is the safest place a child can ever look forward to. If we don't have this, as men and women, it can cripple our ability to love and be loved. But the good news is, the good news is whether this is true by your earthly experience or not, and for many it's not, for most it's not. The very fact that it's so important to your earthly relationships reflects something more important. And don't let the enemy convince you that you'll never find this because your earthly relationships point to something bigger and better. Not to discredit what your dad gives you, but to point to someone who will always be there for you even when he can't be. Because he's just a man. Our souls long for our heavenly father's acceptance. Sin tries to cast doubt over this, but the message of the gospel is that we absolutely have it. If you don't want to listen to anything else today, this is what I hope you get. You have the unconditional acceptance from your Heavenly Father. Religion does not communicate this, religion fights against this, religion proclaims everything but this. Religion is all about pointing out what we don't have and can't have and why we can't have this. Religion wants slaves, not sons, not daughters of God. And and maybe that's why you wonder if you can have it, and maybe you wonder wonder if it's even possible to receive. But by the authority and the reliability of God's word and the gospel, I promise you, you absolutely can. I know it might not be that easy for you to believe, especially if you've got some wounds from your earthly relationships, but I want to promise you, you can have this. And I want to help you get that, or have that certainty. Maybe one of the greatest things about the Bible is not just that it clearly states this, but the Bible also powerfully and emotionally chronicles stories of humanity uh, about people who struggle to find the very things that were right in front of them, just like us. The Bible is honest about its heroes. The Bible gives us people that we can relate to. And it captures stories of real people who lived long ago, who had this connection with God, or could have had this connection with God, and yet they continue to stumble and fall short. We know that sin separated us from God. We know that God worked to change this and save us and proving that he desired us. But there's one story in the Bible that embodies the longing that we all have for acceptance. They can only be found in God. It does something else. There's the story it shows a dad whose own ability to be the father he wanted to be was stifled by his own sin, his own religion, which was supposed to change things, actually made things worse. Much to better better things made things worse. At the heart of the story, there is this longing for acceptance. How the two characters that are spotlighted search for it and just can't seem to find it. One of them, a son. Wants so badly to have it from his father, even though he's done awful things. And the other one, a father, wants so badly to give it to his son, despite all he's done wrong, because he's still his son. Yet the pressure of society and religion kept him from doing that and left him with a lifelong. The story I refer to is is, is all about the story of David. David, we know him as King David. Uh, Maybe you don't know the latter years of his life as much as you do the early years of his life. David is a man after God's own heart, a man that looked to God as a father, a man that felt accepted in ways that religion didn't teach him. David believed that religion was actually obscuring what God actually wanted to show people. David was right. David was given a promise by God that he would welcome a messenger and a savior into the world that would promise and provide his acceptance for everybody. But before all that, David became king, and in becoming king, he became overwhelmed and jaded with the politics and bureaucracy of it all. Life became complicated. His heart became burdened. His hands became bloodied. David always wanted to be a good person, but more... David always wanted to be a good person more than he wanted to be a great king. And that made him... Not the most favorite of the kings Uh, Because he wasn't always looking for more power He was looking for more relationships And that burned him a few times But again and again he felt the pressure of the power He didn't want to enact revenge on Saul's house Even though that seemed like the political smart thing to do He did not want to amplify the divide Between the haves and the have-nots But that seemed like the only feasible thing to do Changing what society had perpetuated Seemed too impossible and too frowned upon to bring David suffered setbacks and grew weary of being misunderstood to the point that he entered a midlife crisis with undiagnosed and untreated depression. His psalms reflect the wound in his soul. He felt as if he had to earn what God promised would always be his. There was a particular season of his life where he eschewed the duties of being king. He found himself giving in to sin. He found himself looking for peace in all the wrong places. The result of this period of David's life is a broken marriage, a broken home. An affair, but more importantly, his relationship with his three children was all but destroyed. David had a daughter and two sons that were in their teenage years. His sons had watched him do what he wanted, when he wanted, with whom he wanted, however he wanted. So one of them decided that even his sister would not be off limits. Now we cringe at that thought, but such was the world, the world that David had relented on trying to change. So David's oldest son violates his sister. His sister is exiled because of the shame that women bore in that situation. And Amnon, his oldest son, seems as if he's going to get away with it. But David's favorite son, Absalom, he looked just like David. He was was the apple of David's eye. He had all the talent and skill that David had. Absalom watched his father do nothing. He watched his father be completely absent from their lives. So Absalom took matters into his own hands. He avenged his sister by killing his older brother. All the while this is going on, David does nothing because David did not know what to do. He did not know where to start. Absalom is exiled because of public outcry. Even though his older brother did something more egregious to his sister, that was acceptable in those days. Absalom murdering his brother, wasn't? Because Amnon would have been the next king, and that would have been the bigger sin in the people's eyes. So Absalom was considered public enemy number one, and he was on the run and placed in exile. And this is a story that I wanted to tell you today, I wanted to remind you of today. The story focuses on the pain within both Absalom and David, the longing within both of them for each other. It doesn't attempt to justify any wrong behaviors, it just spotlights the hearts of a father and a son who both knew what they needed more than anything else, whether they each deserved it or not. What is especially striking about this story in the scriptures found in 2 Samuel is the kingdom never batted an eye at David's mishandling, his marriages, his affairs, his murdering, his hands-off relationship with his kids. The kingdom didn't care when someone would do something awful to someone, especially if it was a woman or a child. But suddenly, after Absalom is exiled, David retreats from the public eye, completely devastated And nobody can understand why. And word gets out that he is in complete depression and devastation over his son being exiled. And people begin to say terrible things about David. Why in the world would David care about that son? Why would he want his son back? Why would he be burdened over his son? People are incredulous. Move on, David. Have another child. You don't need him. He's an embarrassment to you. David couldn't move on His best friend Joab Could see this clearly And the Bible tells us that in 2 Samuel 14 Joab the son of Zariah knew That the king's heart went out to Absalom David's heart longed for Absalom And here's the problem there was no category for David's love for Absalom in these days. That nobody would have ever accepted this irrational, this excessive, this undeserved love. It was considered prodigal. Wastefully extravagant and excessive. Who would love someone like that The world that David lived in had no room for this kind of love. Nonetheless, God uses a certain woman to prophesy to David. She comes to David later on that day, and the Bible says that she comes before him and says, God will not take away or does not desire to take away lives. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She says, David, go get your son. Who cares what religion says? Who cares what the politics say? Who cares? He's your son. He needs you and you need him. Don't let this stuff get in the way. And she tells David, I'm afraid for my life. But I see in you a heart and a love that I've never seen before. Don't let this pass you by. Joab arranges a meeting, but David feels too much pressure to fully embrace Absalom. If David pardoned his son, what would the rest of the nation think? How would they feel? How would would those suffering feel? What would they expect? Absalom feels so burnt in his rejection, he succumbs, succumbs to a dark path. He had to come home on the pretense of being reconciled, but he finds a man that seemingly went back on his word. Absalom doesn't find the acceptance that he needed, so he retreats to his worst instincts and looks for it in other ways. He seeks revenge. Absalom goes to work to charm and win the hearts of the nation, and one by one he undermines his father and wins the support of every trusted official in one of David's uh, David's, uh, uh, cabinets. And he stages a coup against his father. And demands that David show his face to fight. But part of me thinks, and this isn't stated in the scripture, but here's just my hunch. I think that Absalom really wasn't looking for a fight against David. He was hoping that David would fight for him. As in, he was hoping David would say, I will do whatever I've got to do to reconcile our relationship. I will fight for us. But again, there was no category for this kind of love. No, No, in society, there was no place for this kind of love. It may seem odd even today. In a lot of ways, David didn't know how to express this love. He or if anybody would understand it or accept it. So Absalom was in the wrong. Yes, but David does something remarkable in this moment. He just surrenders. He leaves the kingdom, and as men are about to bring the Ark of the Covenant where God was said to dwell, as they're about to roll the Ark of the Covenant down the road with him, David says, no. God will take care of us. I hope and pray that he takes care of Absalom as well. Leave the Ark with Absalom. I don't want anything bad to happen. In a lot of ways, David knew it was too late to be the father he should have been. There was no excusing anything On the, at that point. He was just hoping for the best. We can blame him for being passive, but honestly, there was no way for David to win. Embracing Absalom would cause him shame. Fighting Absalom would cause him pain. If he won, he would still lose. You don't win this kind of war. As things got worse, Absalom descended to a place of a mad king. Bitter and broken, David had to intervene to protect his people and save the nation. David had only one request. Do not kill Absalom. Spare him at all costs. But the story goes that Absalom is killed. The war ends. Yet David is more broken than ever. 2 Samuel 18 says, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. So, David does not re enter the palace with victory or with joy. He enters completely devastated. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died for you instead? And they can't figure this out, David. You just won the war. He was an enemy, he was a villain. Why are you broken for him? And after this, Joab scolds David for being less of a man and for caring more for his son than his nation, which gives us insight as to why David struggled with this. And then I think we can relate. Sometimes we allow this world to choke out compassion and choke out grace and choke out love that we may not know how to express. We can't find the ability to give. What David wanted to give, he couldn't give. What Absalom needed, he never got. And he tried to supplement it with all the wrong things. And his story ends in tragedy. Now I know this story isn't the most uplifting or heartfelt, but it's real. It's a real story about real people just like us. It speaks to what we all need deep down, what we maybe have experienced in earthly ways, what we need in a deeper, more satisfying way. And that's where the Gospels come in. David's descendant, Jesus, stepped into this world that was lost, chained by the very religion meant to bring freedom. Jesus came with one specific mission to reveal God as the perfect Heavenly Father. And this is so important. He matches our soul's desire for acceptance with a desire for us. That what you want most from God, God wants most with and for you as well. If you ever doubt how God feels about you, take the scripture we read from 1 John 4 verbatim. Take this word from Jesus where he says, if you've seen me, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus demonstrated and showed God as Father and there is no other picture. There is no other portrayal of God. There is no other God. Perhaps his best and most famous depiction is recorded in Luke 15, a story that you've heard before. We've all heard this passage, this parable of this trilogy of lost things. An important overarching reminder in that trilogy is that lost things have no ability to find themselves. Isn't that true? That when the woman lost the coin, the coin was waiting for her to find it sheep as bright as they may be in some instances had no ability to get back unless the shepherd came and found it but then there's that parable of the lost son does this apply to that too they must be found by someone completely invested in them for some reason we don't look at the last parable that way do we we blame him and we look at him as this reckless extravagantly wasteful son and that's why we call him the prodigal son but the point of the story is that coins and sheep are not like humans they don't animate the same way our stories are much messier and they're much more layered Yet they're not that different we still need someone to find Jesus tells this gut-wrenching story of an ungrateful son who defiantly leaves his father's home for greater pastures, but he only finds a muddy pig pen. The story goes that he came to himself. He realized what he really needed wasn't the stuff that his father gave him, but it was a relationship with his father. He figured that he'd blown that, but maybe his dad would take him back as a slave. And just being in his father's presence would make his soul feel found and feel saved. That would be enough for him. Over in Luke 15, you know the story. If you want to look at it, you can. But this is the way that story ends. He rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I mean, is that not the most excessive uh, demonstration of loving someone you could possibly squeeze out of a verse? The father sees him, feels compassion for him, runs to him, falls over on him, and embraces him. This story is not about, oh man, this guy's a piece of work. The story is about a father who so loved the piece of work, who was his son and would always be his son. The son said, Father, I've got a speech. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts the son and says to his servants, Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and let us be merry. For this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. Now that's a very important word there. You say, well, this guy came home himself. He was found. You know why? Because he was being pursued by his father's love. Yes, the parable makes it, dresses it up, and tells us all the different angles of the story. But the point of this is that you and I are being pursued by a fierce and ferocious, extravagant love of a heavenly father. We cannot get back ourselves. We don't even have it in us to know how to get back ourselves. The Father is looking for and can find us. Unless he finds us, we don't get back. This is not about pressure on us, it's about the goodness and the glory of God who says, my son was dead and I raised him up, my son was lost and I found him, and that's why they celebrate. No different than the story of Lazarus, Lazarus did nothing to get out of that grave, except he heard the words that brought life to his body. Now we, go, we know how this goes. The older brother shows up. He's wagging and pointing his finger in judgment. Not only at his brother, but at his father. Listen, the, the brother's not mad at, the, the, at his brother. He's mad at his dad. He's angry that his father would just let his brother walk back in. Who would accept a prodigal son back home? And the brother, in verse 28, is angry would not go into the party. So his father comes out to him and pleads with him. He said... To his father love these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandments any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He's just bitter and angry. And he's missing the whole reality that he's been living in. As soon as the son of yours came, you who devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Exactly. He says, for... Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. It was right that we would make merry and be glad that your brother was dead and is alive again. The father makes it very clear. It's not about performance. It's about presence. It's about relationship. It's about knowing the love that God has for us and living in light of that and living because of that. The older son took his father's love to be extravagant, maybe reckless, maybe wasteful, maybe prodigal is the word. that's what this story is all about. The story of a father who from a religious perspective is reckless and extravagantly wasteful, prodigal with his love. But from the father's perspective there's nothing reckless about it, nothing wasteful about it, nothing prodigal about it because this is who God is and this is what he's like and this is how he loves. His compassion never runs out. In fact, it runs toward us. Like the father did in the story, it runs and tears down anything in the way. It's that fierce and furious love that drove Jesus, that kept Jesus going all the way to the cross. This extravagant love would take Jesus to his cross where he would bleed out for the sins of the world because what was in the way of this young man's getting back to God? His sin and something broke that barrier and what breaks that barrier is the blood of Jesus Christ that's poured out for you and for me. We didn't ask for it, we didn't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyway. And even though he's not accepted by everyone, he still loves and he still accepts everyone just as they are. You say, well, that that is a love that is way more extravagant than I could ever comprehend. Exactly that love is God. God is that extravagant There is nothing else, no one else that's on that level that has that. Yet he offers it to you. That's what Jesus makes him so unique, different than you, different than me, different from religion, different from any brand of Christianity, uh, any brand of religion. Jesus loves, forgives, and accepts us unconditionally, unrestrictedly, with unlimited grace. This is what your soul longs for the most. That's what David felt for his son, but he did not know how to show it. It was a few generations too early. Absalom needed this, but he did not get it. God has provided us as our perfectly heavenly Father. In him is love. In him we have seen the Son of God as the Savior of the world. 1 John 4 says, whoever confesses Jesus as the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's 1 John 4 verse 15. It goes on to say that the fear of this world is cast out. By the perfect love of God. If you want to know what is at the heart of God, if you want to hear the heartbeat of God, read Luke 15 again and again and again. Read 1 John 4 again and again and again. If your story is a lot like David and Ashlam's, a story of brokenness, a story of, of what could have been... If that's your story right now, whether you're waiting on someone to accept you or whether you wish you could have given to someone that's passed by, know this, that God can forgive you and God loves you and that God accepts you even when some others in this world don't or can or won't. Just as the son wasted it all with extravagant and unrestrained sinful living, the father accepted and restored him with extravagant and unrestrained saving grace. That is the gospel. We are in the first paragraph and God responds to us with that same acceptance and restoration, that same extravagance, saving grace. That is God's heart toward us today. That which you yearn you yearn for and long for is available in Christ. Maybe you never prayed before. Maybe you don't know how to receive this for yourselves. Maybe you're a Christian, but this has just kind of become so numb and so old hat to you, you've forgotten just how glorious the gospel is. Maybe you want to rededicate your faith today around this amazing promise that is too good to be true, too good for our sin. Yet in God's goodness, it is available to us. So I want to make it easy and accessible. I'm only asking, God is only asking that you just trust him. That tug on your heart is God making a way for you. So what I want us to do, I've got a couple of things I want us to read together. It's a prayer. If you're a Christian, this prayer only reminds you and rededicate and renews your faith. But if you're not a Christian, if you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus, we've learned how personal his commitment is to us. So if you pray this prayer for the first time, I would love for you to make it public today or make it public at some point because you don't want to live in shame or in the shadows anymore because you will have that Mary, that glory, that joy in your heart that only comes from knowing Jesus. Like they celebrated in the parable, you can find joy today. So can we all repeat after me? I'll read it and you can all say it with me. Heavenly Father, I believe that you love me extravagantly. I believe that you love me extravagantly. I believe that my soul needs your acceptance more than anything else. I believe that my soul needs your acceptance more than anything else. I believe that Jesus is my Savior who gives amazing grace. I believe Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Remove, my sin and fear. Remove my sin and fear. And this is the big one. Forever remind, me who I am to you. And forever remind me who I am to you. Church, if we would just nail that down every single day and renew our faith around those promises, what a difference our lives would see. If you're here today and you prayed that for the first time, we made it easy. We all did it with you. But for you, it could change your life. And if it did change your life, during this invitation, I would love for you to come make it public. I would love for you to receive in full and raise up in the newness of knowing God through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this awesome portrayal of your extravagant and glorious fierce love. God, I pray that everybody in this house knows that love in a personal way. I pray that everybody knows you in a personal way, and I pray that they've all had the barriers removed. They've had anything that is in the way removed. You have made a way to them. Lord, now it's in their shoes. Lord, as a Christian, we must always renew our faith around this. We can't step out of grace into performance. We can't step out of acceptance from you into some other game of religion we must remain in this place because we will lose joy and lose peace if we do so lord thank you for being our heavenly father thank you for loving us in this extravagant way lord help us to renew help us to remember help us to receive this amazing gift today tomorrow and forever we ask this in Jesus' name amen